where do you start? It should be on now. It's on. Yeah. Wait a minute. It's coming up. I think that's it. Oh, bollocks. Come on. Ray, you're on. Good evening. Welcome to Fish on Friday. The fol following program contains <laughs> strong language, violent scenes, scenes of a sexual nature, distress distressing scenes, and flashing images. Oh God, I fucked up. As <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> slick as always. Welcome to Vision Friday. Yes. Slange de <laughs> um, The sexual scenes, they're not happening. We decided against them. We figured it was like a bad idea. Uh, <coughs> violence, where uh, we've decided to drop the violence. <laughs> the flashing lights is definitely going to happen. Uh, there's going to be a couple other bits and pieces. It's going to be a bit of a different show tonight. Um, a lot of dancing. A lot of Pittman Ward has been going on and on about me, like... Uh, going dancing and all the rest of it but you will Laura tonight have dancing you will have quite a plethora of dancing a lot of dancing <laughs> so here we are back on a Friday I'm going to zap this down Val Gamble from Extremely Soggy Dunbar I know it's very soggy up here as well and my stepson Liam just told me that we're supposed to be getting snow for uh, about five days and the news that somebody up north got a metre it's <laughs> really worrying well anyway here we go Dave Hamilton from Southport Mark Townsend, Brentwood. Oh, no, 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 I missed you. I don't, da, 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 da. I'm moving up the page, moving up the page. Wait a minute, let's go. David Day, Stuart Lemon, Joy Pierce from Newton Stewart. You're getting it. Annette Garrett from Brum, David Day, Doc Bob Davidson, Shun, Good Nabund, Terence Quinlan, Hi Fish. I've got one, a question from you, Terence. Simon Mostyn, hello. David Ropper, Washington, DC. Simon Bailey, Liam Ramsey. Andy Kerouish, Clive Goodwin from Alfreton in Derbyshire. It's that time again, red wine time. We're on the way here, but I'm starting off with the Erdinger alcohol fry because I don't want to get too messed up before the end of the show. <laughs> Simon Tangalese, York Bushka, Jason Brooks, Jesse Ann McConnell from Helensborough, Tom Bombadil, brilliant, from Soggy Fife. Yeah, my missus at my doors across is there. Darren Gelder from Wakefield, Michael King, Los Angeles, David Poulsen. Did you get a pointless answer? Oh, I missed it. Oh, no, I'm losing it. Hank Templeman. Hi, man. Glad you got the tapes. Okay, Christian Drewson, Bob Wallace, Joe Vincent. Hi, Joe. Callum Jameson, Robert Alderman from Miami, Florida. Oh, no, flashing images. Yes, we're going to have flashing images tonight. It's just good. You love it. You love it. Uh, Alan Summerfield. Oh, love it. One F and a bollocks already. No drama, though. <laughs> the drama comes later. Did it? Stephen Fryer, Shropshire, Colin McDonald, um, John Watson from Calendar, Susan Matt Alexander. Hi, Susan. Are you the same Susan that gave us the special chocolate cake when we went to America? Susan, please answer me. I remember the chocolate cake very, very well. Mark Townsend, Brentwood Essex. Please, oh no, I lost you again. Say hello to my door. Philip Malcolm, Trevor Shreve, Taranovi, please, no. <laughs> Paul Emery, Big Man, Rosie McDonald, John Bushka, 
Oh, here we go. She can't. Nick McMullen, Stephen Fryer, yeah, back to front again. No, it's not, it's the right way around, isn't it? It's the right way around. Oh no, is it the wrong way around? Shit, what have I done? Oh, the tech, man, the tech, it's just outrageous. It's like, um, you'll be very pleased to know that the nice man from the Cal Gas Company came down and I now have my green nipple just outside the wall of the boiler. On the other side of the boiler, on the outside, that's where the green nipple is now. The green nipple is the thing that goes kabang when the water went over, but it doesn't matter now because I've now got an underwater submersible valve out in the, in the manhole cover. And I have the, the thing, the reset button is basically just outside the kitchen and outside. So if anything goes wrong, I know exactly how to fix it. And it was submerged tonight, and like, you know, it seems to be working okay. But I mean, uh, what was it? What other night, what night was it the other night, darling? It was, but it was on, when did we stay up really late? I was, I was out at half past three in the morning. We were, we were sitting up in Anata, which goes back to another question, but we'll get to that. So yeah, we were sitting in here at half past three in the morning, and I realised that it was, uh, um, yeah, it's the wrong way around, isn't it? Is it? Doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, I can't show you something I wanted to show you, but um, but yeah, and I was out at half three in the morning bailing the thing out because it was absolutely pissing down outside, and I knew that the water was going to be rising. And sure enough, I went out there, and it was like it was just about over the valve, but the valve is now fixed. And um, and yesterday we got the range master cooker fixed, so we can now cook all the way up to two hundred and fifty and cook a chicken properly. And um, thanks to my stepson, Liam, who's a very strong young man, uh, he was able to help the gentleman who came along, Ken, if you're watching, hello, thank you very much. Ken was brilliant, right? And it's like, I've never really met anybody that can talk as much as I can, but he basically did. It was like Ken on Thursday, right? It was Ken on Thursday yesterday, Fish and Friday tonight. And Ken did a two hour performance for me in the kitchen and he was fantastic. And I made the terrible mistake of saying to Ken after he told me that uh, he was he repaired uh, Triumph Heralds, right? Uh, that, that's a car, right? That I made the terrible mistake of telling Ken that my dad used to run a Triumph Herald dealership in Dalkeith. It was part of the Dick Brothers garage. And I'm not really into cars, right? I've never I've never been into cars because I look on the automobile industry as stealing my father from me, right? And um, I've mentioned this before, but, but um, my dad had a garage and he was, all his time was spent in the garage. And, um, and I had this, I've always, I've never been into cars because I'm also six foot five, right? The first time I was ever in a Ferrari was one that Chris Kimsey, used, the producer of Misplaced, used to own. And we went out one night in London in a Ferrari. <laughs> and it was like being in a matchbox, right? It was, I was like that. It was just incredibly, and I just, I hate it. And then I remembered I was gonna get a BMW once. I got it in my head, touched the roof, which is why I drive that bloody Skoda outside, which is another story, right? But, uh, but yeah, so cars and I just never really got on. And um, it was like, and I had this guy in my kitchen for two hours that night talking to me about cars, right? And he was, he was really knowledgeable, but I mean, he was talking about things that I kind of had memories or kind of some of the shit. 
right? But uh, it was a 20-minute job to fix the cooker, right? And it was two hours, and I, got, I found it all about triumphs. Everything I possibly want. He was a lovely bloke, a big music fan, huge Joe Jackson fan. And uh, I think he's just been stuck in the house for too long, and like when he gets to people's houses, he just likes to communicate, which we all like to do. <laughs> but Ken was brilliant, and he did a great job, and he replaced the thermostat of the cooker, and as I said, we can now cook chickens. Right. So, there we go. And I was very proud of myself because I managed to fix our Bosch tumble dryer, which is out in the garage. And uh, it wasn't, every time you opened up the door, right, it was, it, it used to, it just steamed, right? It was like, it was, it was like a dry ice machine at a Pink Floyd gig. <laughs> you opened up, right? And I figured there was something wrong, right? So, um, and I already knew about the filters, right? Which is something everybody forgets about. It's like on dryers, they've got these filters and all the fluff that kind of comes off the clothes and things gets stuck in the filters and then it clogs them up. And then as has happened to me before, it's like it, it busts a circuit and I had to fix that. So I was quite confident. I cleaned all the filters and stuff all the bit. And, um, and it still wasn't working and the clothes weren't drying and it was just, you know, like I said, I had a little dry ice machine in the, in the garage. And uh, so I went on YouTube. It's, I, I tell you what, it's like, you can, actually, you can find anything. It's like, Bosch dryer, da da da, ba ba ba, da da ba Next, I've got all these Americans, right? All these movies. I mean, there's about five or six like YouTube videos on how it fakes a Bosch washer. <laughs> and I studied. And as you know, I'm not a great technically-minded person, and I... I shit myself when it comes down to like, you know, dealing with, especially electronics and water, right? Because it's like, that's, you know, fried fish. It's another one of those obituaries you don't really want. Fish fries. <laughs> fish fries in garage, fixing dryer. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, um, and I found out this, it's got a sump, right? And there's a sump and a pump that puts all the water out into the little thing, the tray at the top that you pull out and empty. And, um, uh, and I was in there with screwdrivers, and it was kind of like, I think the technical, like a, a technology kind of version of being a vet, right? It's like, you know, a vet's like, you know, when cows are giving birth, they've got their hand right up, they're trying to pull the cow out, right? And I was the same, and I'm lying on the floor in the garage, in the freezing cold, right? And I've got my arm right up the back of this filler, right? Trying to clean all the lint out of the dryer, right? And, uh, and then I found the sump, and then I went into it. And I basically, I think I found a pair of jeans, right? I shred, it, it appeared to be, there was so much lint in this sump, which was next to the pump that puts the water out. And uh, I, I figured there must have been a pair of jeans disintegrated in the dryer, and like, you know, and all the fluff was just in the pump. So I'm in there, my hands up the back of this dryer, into this sump, and I fixed it, and I was really proud. And you've got no idea when I confront tech and actually beat it, when I battle it down to the ground and make things work with this mind, it's a huge achievement. And I was, I was really chuffed. And I was so chuffed, I actually told my wife three times that I'd fixed the dryer. Uh, fix the dryer, love, fix the dryer, love. It's all working now, it's all working, everything's working now. Uh, it was, uh... So that was the dryer fixed. Uh, the cooker was fixed, uh, the green nipple was fixed, and I no longer have to, you know, go out and bail out the manhole. Uh, 
and uh, we're, we're getting through things, you know. But um, it was, uh, <laughs> but it's never ending. You just, you actually feel sometimes, you know, everybody wants to own a house and, and things like that, and, and we all forget about, you know, <laughs> the eternal decay, right, of like, you know, looking after houses, roofs and drainage and, and, uh, and it's like, I remember when, you know, back in, back in the day, you know, when I was in, in the Marillos and stuff and like everybody's going to like, buy houses and things and like, and you see these people that are buying like old houses, right? Oh, it's a really great, oh, it looks great. It looks like something of a jigsaw puzzle, right? It looks beautiful, but looking good is not like inhabiting a place like that. And then you realize that when you buy something old, right? Especially if you, if you bought like a, a big house that was like a crumbling manor, it's like, it is, it's ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. You're just continually chasing repairs. And this place was built in 1991. And even with that, I'm kinda still, you know, tearing what remains of my hair, which is, I apologise for not having shaved. Uh, my wife asked me to shave. She said, I look like I'm not looking after myself. And I'm not looking after myself, really. But it's, it's these bits here, the werewolf bits, right? And she said, I was supposed to shave them before the programme tonight and I was going to shave my beard off. And I thought, I'll let it go for a bit longer. But it's the spiky bits in the hair, which you can see against the light. I'm, I'm wondering whether it actually grows straight out and whether I could actually you know, tease it out with, with glue and get a complete manic, you know, kind of haircut and get it all, like, tacked up. But next week, because we're coming up to Valentine's Day, which will be a really special programme, promise you, um, because it's on the cusp of Valentine's Day, I'll be shaved and I'll make sure I'm all lined and, and you know, properly dressed for that programme. Tim Edward Sanchez, hello. Sue Prayer, bring back the blue dungarees. Blue dungarees might be back next week. Colin Turner from Coatbridge, Alan Walters, uh, Julian Davis, it's fish pie for tea and a box of Merlot. Good on you. Michael Hall from Los Alamos, I think that was. I missed that one. Andy Laidlaw, where's the remote? I know where the remote is. Jonathan White, I fish Northern Ireland, counted down. Gordon Holder, Simon Deacon. Marcelo Soz from Cruzeiro, uh, Brazil. Andrew McDonald from Saudi. I've got your thing, man. Got it, right? And it's, um, in fact, I got, it was great. I got a load of questions in today. But there was, uh, da, 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 da. all right. This is really cool. I think this is what it's all about. Um, uh, da, da, da. He's pronounced, he asked it, Tim and Joan... Debiver, Debiver, right? And obviously Dutch. And he wrote a real things and he said they had Cinderella Search played at their wedding and things at the ceremony. And he, he actually wrote to me and said, Can we play it? I said, I've got no problem with that. If somebody wants to play something at a funeral or a wedding, go for it. You know? It's cool, you know, and it's it you know, it's nice to be part of something or it's it's not nice to be part of a funeral, but I mean you know what I mean. It's uh, the fact, just what music does, and I think um, the way it touches people and and what it means to people in their lives is, is just amazing. And Tim and Joanne wrote a really nice thing, so thank you very much. Wish you all the best, guys. Right, uh, Joe Smith. What's your favourite Scottish venue? Um, 
That's really hard. Um, somebody wrote about the, my, my favourite Glasgow venue. And the Barrowlands, when it's jumping, when it's packed, is brilliant. I've not played there for a very long time because it's a big venue and it's kind of a bit beyond me now. The ABC I loved until it burnt down. And I loved the Garage and Mayfair. Those were brilliant venues. I mean, uh, but the ABC's kind of, it became kind of part of my history in, in recent years and we had some fantastic gigs. I love the Edinburgh Playhouse, um, but I've not been there for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> Happy Erdinger. Sean Carroll from Chicago, hello. Sean Mitchell, Doc Brown effect. <laughs> Clark McSpenny, well done. Actually, you, you actually ordered a pump. Clark, get it right up, yeah. St Mirren, it was uh, Aberdeen tomorrow. Uh, um, sorry, football talk. Flock of seagulls, dude, but the tide's gone out. Richard Llewellyn, yes. Mandy Brain, fish by two. Janice Pond, don't go crusty the crown. <laughs> don't go crusty the clown. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I wanted to do something, a couple of things, right? Paddy Hannon, my first ever Fish and Friday question. Can you remember the book you're reading at the bar on the Clutching at Straws album cover? I think I was actually reading something by Kerouac. It wasn't on the road. It was something else that I was reading at that time because I thought it was appropriate. It was, you'll get in the moment. Yeah. And... Uh, Sabine Brignall and Richard Allen Quadlin, right? If you hadn't been called Fish, what other name would you have liked apart from your real name? Um, when I left Marillion, it was, it was really difficult. Um, a lot of people made out that I, I wanted the name. I never actually wanted Marillion. I never challenged them for the name. You know, I kind of actually said, right at the start, you're the name, it's like Steve, Mark, Ian, Pete, it's like Marillion is band. I wasn't going to get involved in this kind of crap that um, some other bands have been through where they end up in legal wrangles. I just went, I don't want a name. And, um, and I kind of, it, it was obvious that I had to go out as fish. I did think about trying to come up with a band name, but I just thought it would just really confuse things. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, fish part of, you know, it was, it was always going to be me, so it had to be fish. But, I mean, uh, I did think about Derek Dick, but, I mean, I thought people would probably think it was some sort of porn star or something making albums. <laughs> Dick. <Right. laughs> oh, Spicy Vines, give a dozen roses and kisses for Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah, thanks. A little messages that pop through. Unlike the vegetable stuff, but... I thought I'd start up some music. We're talking about things breaking down, right? And um, I've got to set this up. So, we were talking about things breaking down. Shit, I've got to be very careful here. <laughs> Seriously. I don't do this on purpose. The fucking remote. <laughs> Seriously. It's, I'm, it's got a life of its own and it just goes... I hand it out because I was... Oh, there it is. And um, so I thought I'd, I'd put some alternate music on just to, to tell you about this, right? So I'm going to line it up, right? Um, oh, go away. It's um, here we go. 
we go. That's the one for layer. Oh yeah. Can get there. So, this is one of the next big kind of repair jobs of the never-ending house decaying story falling apart. Don't you dare, right? So, before Simona came across, we built uh, an extension, right? Or I built this extension which had a, a bathroom because the only bathroom that used to be in the studio was what used to be the old amp room. And if you were sitting watching TV or if you came in the house back for shops or whatever, and you leave the toilet, you have to go all the way through the studio. And on top of that, the two recording rooms became bedrooms. And we didn't have enough kind of bathrooms. And on top of that, I had to get permission to change the studio into a kind of residential property. And because of the rules that had changed, they all had to be for, you had to have a disabled access or you had to have disabled access. And I was going like, you know, jumping through hoops. And I'm going, why do I have to get this done? And I was looking at sorting the bathroom through there and it became too complicated. So we decided make a bigger bedroom and put an extension on. So we put a shower, which is fantastic. And in the long run, since my mum moved in here two years ago, you know, it is now our bathroom. But we have this incredible thing where up, up till about two weeks ago, right, you could get up in the middle of the night and walk through the bathroom and there would be slugs and snails crawling <laughs> across the floor. And we were going, where did they come from, right? And I've discovered because uh, Stephen, uh, the, the guys that are doing the, the extension, which is gonna be the bath. Ah, the bath. Could be just a month away, maybe, maybe, maybe. The weather's dealing us a lot of curveballs. Um, the slugs and snails, and someone took photographs of them. Because <laughs> I, I didn't believe her when she first said it, because I was just been in the toilet. And I said, the, the slugs come, come out of the plug. And basically it was an air vent, and the slugs were coming up through the shower thing and, and all the rest of it. And they, they basically, it was the piping on the original extension of the bathroom was seemingly um, not working as it should have been doing. And the slugs were coming through an air vent. So that's all got to be sorted out. But... When I got the extension of the, the bathroom extension, I decided to put some, uh, to make it kind of cool, right? And, you know, I, I'm not, it was me. I was a guy, I was on my own, right? And I just went, where do you go for stuff quickly and you just want to get up Ikea, right? So I went to Ikea and I got the sink unit and stuff and I got a nice cupboard. And I thought because Simona was, was going to be, be over and coming over and stuff, I got a nice mirror and, and things. I forgot to put the shaving plug in and, and the, the, the thing for the hairdryer because of... Duh. <laughs> Duh. So, I forgot about that. But I got a really nice kind of unit with a mirror on it, right? And, um, and it's great, and it's got a great big mirror, and it's, I got the light sorted out, and everything was good. But the thing was, it was all, they had lighting incorporated within the cupboard, within this IKEA cupboard. And it wasn't cheap. It was, it was three, 300, 400 quid for this unit, right? And it's only been in there about, how long has it been in? 
Five years, if that. Yeah, you came across in, in 16. It was there before, 15 I put it in. Mm. Yeah, so it was like, you know, within about four years, right, because it's still fucked. <laughs> Suddenly the lights started flashing and, and the, the two lights in the side of the unit didn't work. And I got in touch with Ikea and I said, look, there's something wrong with the, the electric transformer and this should be happening. And the first thing they come back at you was, sorry, sir, but it's out of warranty, right? And I'm going, okay, fair enough. But I've got a 400 pound unit that's got lights in it. And I said, it's broken. Where do I get the parts, right? And uh, they said, oh, can't do anything. And I got a bit stroppy and I phoned up which legal team and they said, oh, consumer right, right acts and stuff like that. And I went back to them and they sold me this unit. And the problem is that the IKEA unit itself is built in Scandinavia or comes out of Scandinavia. And, but the lights were all Chinese. It was all that Chinese rubbish. And I don't know if you've ever bought electrical stuff from IKEA, but I'm sorry. My personal experience is it's shite, right? And every light that I bought at IKEA is broken after about three years or something like that. It, it doesn't seem to last, in my opinion. I'm sure it's probably just my own personal experience avoiding any legal claim coming at me from somewhere out of Scandinavia. But I went back and I said, just, can I get the, the lights? And can I get the, and they sent me the unit. I bought the unit, the new the kind of transformer unit, replaced that, right? Which took me about a day, right? And then the things weren't working and I said, you know, it's, it's not happening. Can I, can I get the lights? Can I get replacement bulbs or whatever? Because it looks like the LED strips are broken. Oh, I can't do that. Can't do it, can't supply it and all the rest of it. So now I'm stuck with this unit through there, right? And this is what I'm going to show you. Right? It's great because now I've got a disco bog. Right? <laughs> it's a disco bog. And there are two switches when you go through in, in, into the little corridor, right? That'll show you in a minute, right? There's two switches. And if you get up at, say, three o'clock in the morning, because, you know, I'm a bit old and stuff, and, you know, what happens with bladders and stuff like that in the middle of the night, you need to go for pee, especially after you've been on the sauce. If you get up in the middle of the night, right, and you put the wrong lights, flick the wrong, the wrong light switch, I will show you what happens, because the bathroom turns into disco bog. <laughs> right? So I thought, let's get the music started up early, Right, so that I can, you know, get into the vibe, right? Because this is going to be a bit of a dancing thing, just for Laura Bitman Ward. I thought I'll just throw in a couple of dance moves tonight, right? So I thought I'd do this and I'll show you exactly what happens, right? Uh, where is it? What's the button? Uh, that one. Yeah. Let's go to the disco bog. Turn the volume up a bit, honey. Let's go. Disco bog. Disco bog. Welcome to the disco bog. Yeah. Flashy lights, beware. This is what happens. This is disco bog. <laughs> I need you switch the light off. Jimba, 
One, two, three, shake your body down. I just want to, anybody that's really worried about this. This is not standard fare in this house for music. It just happens to be a compilation album that I found. <laughs> so that's my, uh, that's my Ikea disco bog. Go off. <laughs> but if you go through in the middle of the night, especially when you let a, you know, a wee couple of sheets to the wind, and if you switch that wrong light on, it's scary. It's really scary. And you're reaching for, you know. Anyway, that's where it's at. Disco bog. My IKEA disco bog, right? Disco shit, yeah. <laughs> Simon Farquhar, good evening, sir. Uh, <laughs> Clark, you, you got the only same thing as well. What's the point? It's selling a unit. It's like four hundred quid or whatever it is, right? And then the lights go, and they can't. You can't replace the lights. Yeah, I just want to put different lights in and get it working. And IKEA just walked away from it. We're not dealing with it. We don't care. Your problem, right? Thank you. So when we get, when we get the um, when we get the next extension, well, we get the extension done, and we put the bath the bathroom in, right? It's like the one thing I am not going to be buying is IKEA stuff. Right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got some other stuff. I've got some really good stuff here tonight. And I'm, I'm, I'm gutted. I actually sorted out the... I, th I thought I'd sorted out the bit, but it's the wrong way around. Because that should... That... That should be there, I think. I can't remember. I get really confused. Questions? <laughs> um, da -da 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 -da. Ah, James, like choosing a favourite child, I guess, but what is the song have you enjoyed performing the most, the one that you never tire of? Um, I always get a bit... Lucky was in... During the 90s, Lucky was in... After the Internal Exile album, obviously. It was in all the sets, and it was played for, you know, tour after tour after tour, to the point where I actually got sick of it. And... It, it developed. I mean, lucky. There's some versions on the live album, some of the live albums, and they're like about 15 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, you have a solo. Yes, have a, I'll go and have a glass of wine. Play a solo. Right. <laughs> the company. Look, I think the company's probably in my in my solo. And my solo career is probably the most played song. And it's, it's been in all the sets. And uh, I think because it's, it's, you know, having a song at the end where it's, you know, a dancing kind of vibe thing. Right? Which brings me on to Vigil. Got to watch, I've just fired this up. <coughs> oh, boy. <coughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Burn cigarettes, they say. Ah, <laughs> oh, bastard. I know, I don't know whether it's empty or not. Beagle. 
I'm not singing for a while, so I don't care. <coughs> um, where was I? Vigil. Vigil. Yeah, it's uh, kind of moved on. And uh, my lawyer, Simon, who's a really nice guy, he's, we, we've just been trying to get answers. And we finally got answers the other, a few days ago. And in spirit, everything's agreed. And uh, all we've got to do is kind of nail some details and bits and pieces and things of the deal. And it's, it's there. But Vigil, because it's taken so long to get this far, and because it's a project that is obviously really close to my heart, because it was my first solo album, you know, and it's, um, and it's the oldest, obviously. And um, because of that, there's so much material to go through and Steve Vances and I have got to wade through a lot of stuff. And um, I'm, that won't be out till September, or late summer, probably August, September. And um, it's going to be a case of doing a massive compilation. And I, I did a, a lot of stuff with Dave Barris. We, we, Dave did a great job. Dave and Scott did a great job shooting the, the original visual documentary. I went through all this eight millimeter footage, um, this kind of mini cassette footage and deep, mini DVD footage. And uh, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of film from, from that time. And I think we're going to have to reshoot it because it was done about a year and a half ago in preparation for the Vigil album that we thought was going to be coming out basically in <laughs> oh, 2000 and where are we in the scheme of things? The Tudor age, the Mesopotamian age. Um, we were looking again out in, in 19 and then it moved to 20. So the, the documentary kind of footage is kind of, it needs to be expanded upon and it needs to take care of some other things. But as I said, Warners, who now own EMI, are, are completely in the idea and they've been great. They, were, they, were, they came back to me yesterday and had a lovely talk with one of the, Kathy, who works for them. And it's all there. I mean, so we just have to get the, you know, I's dotted, creased, T's crossed and stuff. <laughs> the teeth but um yeah but it's, it's a big project and there's a lot of material i mean there's the, the main album but as i've said before i'm not getting into baking tapes it's uh to go in and start baking tapes and doing remixes and and, and things it's just it, it would be far too expensive for the numbers that i actually do in all honesty and so what we'll do is we'll we'll kind of use the, the digital stuff that we've got of the Vigil album present and we will manipulate it and we will sort it out. But it's it's coming there. I mean, I, I, I think with a fair wind, with a fair wind, I reckon we could get this sorted out by next week as long as there's no kind of speed bumps that we hit. And uh, and I, I think it can be done. Like I said, Warners have been great dealing with it. It's just taken ages, but it's all got to do with COVID and access and contracts and all sorts of shit, but it's, it's there. But as I said, the company's probably the most played song, so it could be well, an entire CD on the deluxe version with just 10 different versions of the company. <laughs> because there's so many, this is the thing. With Vigil and Internal Excel, you've got all these songs that have been around for, what is it now? 30 years, you know? And um, there's so many different band lineups. There's been so many different venues and tours and things that like, there's a lot to choose from. 
and you know, and I have to find out kind of what are definitive versions. And so, um, but yeah, so it's it's been good. It's not signed off yet. There could still be a trip up, but you know, I'm I'm feeling confident now. I'm a lot more confident than I did a couple of weeks ago after talking to Cathy. You know, so it's there. Uh, Andy Preston said, have you any, had any dealings with Colin Hay from Men at Work, who's Scottish, Glaswegian? No, I haven't had anything to do with Colin Hay. So that's that one. One page gone, look at that. Um, Paul Cater, who would you buy a ticket to see if you were going to see a concert once lockdown and normal gig going returns? Uh, I'd buy a ticket to see me, actually, just for the fun of it. Right, just for, you know, I don't know, I mean, I don't go to many gigs. When I was a kid, if I had this the right way around, which I'll, I'll do it next week, I promise, right? But um, the thing is, is, when I became a singer, your entire, of when you get involved, when you become a professional musician, singer, whatever, you tend to find that your, your whole kind of um, perspective on gigs changes, you know? And um, you tend to analyse, you, you, you go along and you're watching somebody and go, oh, that's a nice trick, or like so-and-so, or that's a nice trick, and you, it's, it's just very different. And um, I don't enjoy gigs as much as I used to. Um, I think because it's something where you see singers that are a lot better than you, you kind of go like, oh, bollocks, you know? But um, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I'd love to... I watched the Roger Waters, the Austin, is it the, was it the Austin M thing? The, the one where they had the, the Battersea Power Station, that was phenomenal, right? I, I didn't even know that happened, and I missed that. And that's one of the problems that I always have as well, because it's, it's you know, when you're on a tour, you tend to miss events and miss shows and, and things. And if you are on tour, the last thing you want to go and see is a gig. And I remember going to see Queen in Colm, and Spike Edney had got us a bunch of tickets. And all the band and crew went along. And it was, I hated it. It was like, you know, the gig was like, it was a, it was a pretty good gig, but the, the whole experience of being in, in another show, I never, I can't relax. You know, I just cannot relax at all. So, so I'm not, I'd love to go and see a gig, you know, but I'd prefer go and see somebody working in a pub down the road, you know, and hearing that. Simon Boston, would you ever go back to the Somme? Yeah, I would. I would, especially if you were there, but you're going to be able to go there now since... Because it's seeming like people get annoyed that I talk about breaks a lot, but I'll talk about it later because I don't give a shit, right? Um, Mary Craig, what would you like to be remembered for? Uh, um, being different. Um, I think just being honest, I suppose. That's, it's a difficult question to answer. I think, you know... Just for being me, um, uh, Andy Henderson, I know you sang with Sensational Alex Harvey Band, but did you ever meet Alex? No, I didn't. Alex very sadly died, and I would have loved to have met Alex Harvey. Um, and this is where I'm going to kind of wander through because it's getting into that time zone, right? So, <laughs> you can roll. <laughs> So I'm going to go through the control. I should have, I'm sorry, I screwed up with this. I pressed the wrong button and then it went live and it all went horrible, right? 
So I'm going to go through to the control room. And you're going to hate this because there's something on the wall here that you're going to be going, what does that all say? Right. That. Right. Sensational Alex Harvey band. That is <coughs> Alex Harvey's autograph. And that is the best of both worlds. You can't read what it said. But that was signed by all the band. We all wrote on these posters and sent little messages to each other. But that is Alex Harvey's autograph. The wrong way around. So look at it in a mirror and you'll suss it. And that was given to me by a really old friend of mine in Belgium called Patchouli, who was a DJ. And uh, he got it off Alex. He was a big Harvey band fan. And um, basically... He met him then when Alex was incredibly drunk and he wrote this scrawled out signature. And Patchouli, as I said, was a great friend and a great supporter and I mean in Belgium. And um and he gave that and I was and I've always kept it. And Patchouli sadly died of cancer about oh god, how long ago? It must be about nine months ago or something. I loved a great, great guy. And it's um but uh yeah, the Alex Harvey signature. The Harvey band, you know, I did a couple of songs and that's, I'm going to play a couple of things tonight. I'm going to take a little step out because I know you've chosen Fearless. And uh, I've got a story around Fearless, but I put on the songs from the Mirror kind of album and I've decided not to play the studio version. I'm going to play the live version and there's a reason for it. Uh, um, six in the vape and hopes he doesn't kill his lung again. Okay. Back in the mists of time, back in the year of, of sort of nineteen ninety-two, three. Well, the years 1993. Um, I was signed to Polydor, and a lot of you know the story already, but what happened was that um, I did the Internal Exile album, which didn't sell as well as Vigil. Um, there was a lot of reasons behind that that I don't really want to go into here. But, um, and I said, I wanted to do the cover version album. I needed time. I mean, I'd just come through the Marillion legal confrontation and the big legal confrontation with EMI. And I was not in a place... Oh, I was in a really bad place. I'd kind of fallen out of love with music and stuff. And, and at the same time, I had this place. I had the studio. And the studio was a dream. I had investors and I had payments to make every kind of, uh, every month. And they were crippling me. And the only way I could keep this going was to do my own albums here. And I had the Polydor deal was a licensing deal, which I wish I'd had, which goes back to a question that's in here. But um, I had kind of full control for the first time of content and what happened was that I went to Polydor and I said, look, I'm having problems here with writing. I need a help, right? 
And the Polydor deal, without going into a lot of detail, had been uh, kind of hamstrung by when I came out of EMI. Right? Not going into that detail. But um, I needed an album and I needed to find myself again. I needed to, I needed to rediscover my love of music. Right? And I was, I had block. I mean, I had absolute hellish writer's block, as you can imagine, from dealing with two massive kind of uh, legal operations, right? And I had to go back to my past and I wanted to find out, I wanted to kind of rediscover my love of music <clears throat> and, um, and, you know, what pulled me in in the first place. And that was when I decided to do the cover version album, which was Songs from the Mirror. And it was called Songs from the Mirror because back when I was uh, a kid, when I was a teenager, right, I used to have my ITT stereo upstairs in the house in, in Dalkeith and Glebe Street. Right? And I used to wind it up. And I used to come back, when I came back for school, right, I used to wind it up and I used to, there was a pole that, it was used to open up the attic where I had a, a kind of room as well where um, I used to, we used to play table tennis. My mates used to come around and stuff. But there was a pole that you pulled the hatch down with, which was kind of like a microphone stand. And that's what I used to do. I used to put on the ITT stereo, turn it up to 11, right, so the speakers were dancing. And I used to sing in the mirror. And it was a great big... Um, old-fashioned, full-height wardrobe with a door in the middle with a mirror on it that you opened up, right? And I used to sing in the mirror and I used to pretend I was a singer in a band. And I used to have the pole and do all the Rod Stewart moves with the faces, you know, Roger Dory one night. And it was my little kind of, little private fantasy of being a singer. And, um, and that was why the album was called Songs from the Mirror. And I wanted to pick a lot of songs on it that were, um, uh, that were basically that were my favourite songs or f from bands or whatever that were important to me <clears throat> from when I, was a, when I was a teenager. And by doing that, it was, uh, it kind of got me back into it again. And, um, it, and when I went to Polydor, I said, I want to do a cover version album. And, uh, and I said, if, if you fund me for... It, I was only saying to Polydor for two albums, for basically Internal Excel and another one. And I went to Polydor and I said, um, basically, if you sign me up for three albums, we'll give you songs from the mirror and then we'll work on what was going to be the Suits album kind of simultaneously, which is what we actually did. And um, Polydor were totally against the idea of cover album. And they sent a guy, Graham, who was my A&R guy, this, this, he was brought up to the studio. And after my dealings with EMI and the whole legal shenanigans that went on there, I was, I don't know, maybe paranoid, um, but I was extremely cautious, you know, about my dealings with record companies, you know. And I, I taped it all, and I've still actually got a dat tape of that meeting with Graham, my, my Polydor A&R guy. And... He was trying to convince me to like, you know, don't, we can't do a cover album. Why do you do an EP? We do an, do an EP and I said, I can't do that. 
I've got to do a full album because I had to get in, <clears throat> I, because because I had a licensing deal. Polydor basically gave me an advance, which paid for the recording, and that money from the recording was what was basically keeping a roof over my head, and because of the studio. And I was in, and I was in a absolutely entrapped, right? And um, I couldn't go on with the Suits album. I remember going down and, and talking with Polydor at the time, and, and it was David Munns, who was a great friend of mine and became managing director of Polydor after coming out of EMI, which is another story. But, um, and I remember, you know, David Munns said to me, well, why don't you just get rid of the band? Get rid of the band and write the album yourself. And it's like, well, David, I have to have musicians to actually write with, you know. And it's like, I can't just, you know, drop everybody and, and you know, there weren't, nobody was on retainers, you know. But at the same time, I had to try and keep a unit together. And that was when this whole period in kind of 92, 93, where I was going out and um, I had a converted, uh, there was a converted horse truck that we used to carry the equipment in that belonged to Ash Field, who was working for me at the time. And Ash was Andy Field, who was, Basically, um, my he sadly died, and about uh, at the end of '91, before all this stuff happened, right? And Ash came up and walked in the office with us, and she had a horse box, and that was converted into a, a van, and um, we got all done up, and we did all these stupid gigs all over Scotland, just trying to basically keep myself alive and keep, you know, keep the pack of wolves away from my door. It was a really heavy duty time. And I was dealing with Polydor and um, it was getting more and more fractious and we just went ahead and I brought James Cassidy in and James and I had met on the, the Spartacus album, Jeff Wayne's Spartacus album. And James came up and agreed to produce it and he, he did, he really helped us out. And he, James would go on to work with this, on the Suits album as well, but Songs from the Mirror was an album that was kind of, they just went, no, nah, we don't want it. And I said, we have to do it. And because I had control, right? As I said, for the first time in my life, I had creative control because Marillion did not have that with EMI. With the EMI contract with Marillion, if they wanted to, they could actually say, we don't want this, go away and do it again, right? And it was a shocking state of affairs and it was, with Marillion, it was easy to do. We were, we became a, a, a very successful band, so, and they weren't really sure how to deal with us and what the band really meant. But when I went solo, it was a different matter. But I learned from that EMI experience because, again, it's a very complicated story. Songs from the Mirror. Um, I did this, did the cover album, and it was released. And uh, it fell flat on its face. A lot of people were going like, why is this happening? And the, nobody, I think a lot of fans couldn't understand why I did a cover version album. But it was out of pure necessity on a financial level, but also trying to get my head back together into a place where I could write again and, 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 and be a proper creative artist. I need to free myself, I need to free the block. And mirror, the mirror did that. And, um, and we went out on tour. John Kavanagh was my manager during the um, the Polydor uh, licensing deal. And 
the situation just became horrendous. I mean, um, it was very, very difficult. It wasn't going anywhere. There was, the stress was unbelievable uh, at that time. And um, basically, I asked, I fired John. It was very difficult. He was a really good friend, but it, we just weren't going anywhere. Andy Field had died. He dealt with all the life stuff. John was a record company guy and I'd lost one of the twin pillars. And when I had to relook at how my whole management was going. And I took on Brian Lane, who was uh, the former Yes manager and is still involved with, with Yes even to this day. And uh, Brian was a different beast. He was a completely different beast. London, big time music manager. And he went into Polydor to try and sort out the whole songs for the mirror stuff and everything. And um, and he was just hitting blank walls. But we put the tour together and the tour was very successful. It was, the, it was one of the most successful tours, which came really through, you know, Brian's experience with, with, with touring. He could make, he, he was the first person that I kind of like, that set a tour up that I actually made money from, right? And we went out with songs from the mirror on tour and Polydor were gonna have to make a decision. And the reason being that I was signing Polydor for two albums and landed them with a cover version album, which had really pissed them off, right? And I knew I was pissing them off, but I had no other option, right? And um, they had to decide whether they were gonna pick up the next option to make the next album, which was gonna be Suits, right? And in the back of my mind, Right? I knew that after Songs From The Mirror, I was gonna have to come out with a, a proper original studio album, a proper Fish studio album, new songs and all the rest of it. And that was my other fear when I was dealing with the Polydor situation because if I delivered a half-baked Suits album, then I would have been dropped. And then I was gonna have to go and uh, the only way I could get out of it was doing a cover version album. So. Either which way, I was between a rock and a very, very, very hard, spiky place. And um, and that's what I, I did. Hit them with the Songs of the Mirror album, had suits in my back pocket. Uh, we went out on the tour. Brian was sorting it. And at the Utrecht Friedenberg gig, I was told, basically, before I went on stage, that Polydor had dropped me. Uh, and it was exciting and it was petrifying at the same time because I had no fucking money. <laughs> it's like we'd blown everything on, on the Songs for the Mirror album and we, we were waiting on the next thing. And by this point, I knew I was persona non grata in the UK music industry because, you know, I just taken the might of court <laughs> and basically in the eyes of the music business, I just stiffed Polydor, which was not my intention. And well, and it was like, this Scottish guy's a complete nutter. <laughs> and, uh, and there I was in Utrecht at the Friedenburg, one of my favourite ever venues in, in Europe. I love that venue. I had such brilliant times there. And I walked on stage that night and uh, I had no record deal for the first time since 1982. And, uh, and I had a huge debt and... Um, and I had, I, I didn't know what was going to happen, where, how I was going to get the next album out. And uh, eventually, you know, 
what happened was that after the tour, I came back here and, you know, and I came up with the idea of the, the Dick Brothers label and just going completely independent on my own because there was nobody else who was going to sign me. <laughs> and I knew I had a fan base and it was like, OK, well, how do we do this? But that night in the Fredenburg, uh, I walked on. I think we actually played two nights there. And um, we walked out and it was... Uh, I was completely free. I was... You know, <laughs> no record deal. And... Uh, and the song th that we opened up with was Fearless. And the attitude in this gig, and the, the thing was that the Fredenburg show was the first real release on the Dick Brothers label because that was the Sushi album, which was Dick Brothers uh, CD2 or whatever it was. And that was the, the, the label that kind of, that, that was the, the album, and that was the show that launched Dick Brothers. And, and I picked Fearless right, as my Floyd song, because I wanted to do a Floyd song. And, uh, I mean, what Floyd songs do you do? I had to go back. You know, I couldn't do anything off the wall or something like that. I wanted to go back to my, my, when I first discovered Pink Floyd. Um, the first Floyd album that I really heard was Metal. And, um, and Fearless was one of the tracks of Metal. There was a couple other ones I thought about doing Careful uh, with the oxygen and but I wasn't really into that kind of 60s Floyd. You know, I was I was more into the 70s Floyd, pre-Dark Side, you know, from Dark Side of the Moon around about that. And metal was for me was the launch pad for Dark Side of the Moon. And that's where I went to. And I loved the lyric and fearless because I think it kind of it was where I, where I was at the time, you know, and I was going to have to grow up here, you know, to, to, to deal with all this. And, you know, as I said, when I committed to doing a cover version album, it was, uh, it just seemed a, a perfect song. Just, you know, the, the substance of the song just had a bit of a tact to it. And we recorded it and it was, we got a great, great recording, you know, and, um, the one thing I remember is, is uh, Mick Wall on the on the original version. He does this thing because I phoned up Mick, and you know Mick had been th with me through thick and thin through the Marillion times and the, my first, you know, solo solo steps. And um, and we were talking on the phone, and I said, "Can I record it? I wanted to use some effects as Floyd always did." And Mick came up with this thing about the answer machine, where it was, uh, you know, it's like you pick up the answer machine, there's no, nothing there, <laughs> nobody phones you. And that was where I was at that time. I mean, I was absolutely, I'd gone from being Fish, the big singer with Marillion and stuff, to being this guy that was living up in Scotland that nobody would touch with a barge pole. <laughs> and Mick and I were kind of consoling each other about the fact that we were completely unloved. And, um, uh, and I walked out of the Friedenburg, and that's why I wanted to play you this version tonight because it's just the vibe that's in it. And um, we should get the we should get the lights sorted out, darling. We should definitely fix the lights. So I'll go find the remote. Here we go. Find the damn thing. Get the disco off. Remember not to put the DVD in this time and confuse the machine. But this is on this is on the songs from the mirror uh, remaster. It's not. Um, this is a live version that was from the, the, the original sushi recording. 
that Callum kind of touched up and remastered. <coughs> Where is it? It's number... But I'm going to let it run. I'm going to let this run because um, when I played it this afternoon when I was checking and making sure the machine was working <laughs> and that the disc wasn't skipping and it wasn't the DVD because I'm trying to be professional at all times in my approach to these programs. It was, um, when I put it on, it ran, it, it's a very quick jump into the next track, which was played, which was the second track that was played at the, Freden, at the Fredenburg in Utrecht, right? And I heard it and I went, oh. And that was why with the Harvey Band, that's why I wanted to show you the, the Harvey Band autograph and, um, and, uh, and just kind of set this up. So I'm gonna play you not one, not one, but two tracks together tonight, so you can hear them. And where are we at? We need to get the lights dimmed first. This is the right one, I think. 13 tracks of the disc. It's track number four. I walked out there that night, on that night, with no deal, and I went, fuck this.
welcome to the wonderful world of rock and roll. Yeah. <sighs> that was something. That's the first workout I've had in a while. <laughs> Doesn't help with the fire on the big jersey on. <sighs> a shift. <laughs> Dancing. <laughs> Dancing. <coughs> I could take this off. Mm. <sighs> I'm glad we didn't have a wood burning stove on stage when we go out. <laughs> R.I.P. Ted McKenna. Yeah, I remember when uh, when we actually recorded the the studio version of Boston Tea Party. It was, um, and I had the whole band here. Uh, it was Ted, um, Ted and Hugh and Zal, right? And um, they were all through in this very room. And uh, James and I were in the control room. And uh, it was just amazing. Ted was just such a brilliant drummer. Right? And, um, when they kicked in, when the whole band kicked in, it was just amazing. But then Zal, oh, when Zal came to do that solo, it was just, the energy was actually tangible. It was like, he just filled the room, just were the presence. He, it was, he's a very, he's a, he's a, I love Zal, he's a beautiful guy. And I, I wanted him to join the band when, um, when Robin left. I tried to get Zal to come in and, and play guitar for me. And he said he wasn't going to get involved with touring anymore. He'd, he'd had enough. And, um, and uh, but he was a really quiet man, very highly intelligent, very sharp man, very sharp man, and um, very sensitive at the same time. And um, but when he had the guitar on, and when he went into, when he started to play, and he, when he took that, when he took that solo in the middle of Boston Tea Party, it was like. Oh, it just, it, it just, we were, it was, there was goosebumps. My, the hair at the back of my, my, my head, back of my neck was actually on standing <laughs> straight up. It was like, what the fuck? You know, it was just amazing. And I was really, I was really proud that I got a chance to, to you know, to, to actually do a definitive kind of recording with them. I mean, I, I loved the band, but I never met Alex. And as I've said before on a previous Fresh and Friday, the only time I ever saw them live with Alex was supporting the Who <coughs> at Parkhead Stadium on the the Boot the Booting tour, and uh, they gave the Who a run for money. You know, I mean, the one thing you like as a as a, uh, as a band when you've got a, a supporting act or a guest act that can you know that gets a reaction from the crowd, and um, you know they're fired up. I mean, the, the last thing you want. Is a support act. It's, it goes down like you know, an old ship, right? And the Sabs really pushed the Who that day. Really pushed the Who. And I think 
you know, and I think Daltry and Townsend were sitting backstage going like, you know, we better up our game here. And of course, Sabs were playing Glasgow. It was it was hometown because they were uh, Ted and, and Hugh were Coat Bridge boys, and, um, but they were phenomenal. And I'd, I'd never seen them before. I had friends. It was really strange that I, as a teenager, I went to lots of gigs, and I never, I, I just kept on missing the Sabs for some reason. And they kind of went by me. I knew the singles. I knew the next album. I knew, you know. The Tomorrow Belongs to Me stuff and everything like that. Which, oh, that is another one. Oh, I forgot about that. It was um, on Internal Exile, right? Um, on the Internal Exile album that I did for Polydor, as I told you before, one of the songs that I was going to put on the Exile album was Tomorrow Belongs to Me, which came from the Cabaret movie, which you will remember from a previous Fish and Friday. It was the song that I heard uh, when Tara was born on New Year's Day in '91, and um, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to put that. I wanted to do a cover on on Internal Excel, and they went, "No, <laughs> you can't do that." And it was, uh, and they talk, absolutely talked me out of it because they said it, it's so many because of the song and the lyric, which was actually the song was written by a couple of Jewish guys, right? <laughs> which is irony of all ironies. The original song was written by um, Jewish writers, and yet it became synonymous with the Nazis because of the cabaret film and everything. And, um, and I argued my point basically around that, and I said it's a great song because Eternal Exile was obviously me finding, you know, my Scottish nationalism, and um, and I, I wanted to put it in, but it was it was like too dodgy. It's like you know, if if somebody cottons on. You know, you're opening up a Pandora's box with this. And I just went, I understand. And I walked from it. Somewhere on a tape, I think there actually is a version. It's a very, very difficult song to sing. Tomorrow Belongs to Me. But I, I love the song. And um, and that was why, you know, Boston Tea Party became, went on to the, the thing. Because I'd obviously done Fearless. You know, round about the... Um, I'd done Fearless on, on the, the, the Vigil Tour. Because when we started off... The, when I did my first solo gigs, you know, it was like, well, what song do I start off with? Do I start off with um, a Marillion song, Fish song, whatever? And I thought, let's go left field. And I started, I started with Faith Healer. And eventually, you know, I did um, Faith Healer on um, the Rain Gods with Zippos album. And um, which is a, a lot of people, like, that version is highly regarded. And, um, and it was the same with Fearless. It was like, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to have heard, I'd love to hear what Dave Gilmore and Roger Waters actually thought of my version of Fearless, which I don't even know if they've ever heard it, but I'm sure he's got Spotify. <laughs> uh, Tom Bombadil, little kill me, dance, he's all the way through. I'm here, wheezing, but I'm here. Uh, John Watson, Zal, great guitarist, jazz fan, support independence, yes. I've not spoken to Zal for a while. I was... I was going to meet him the last time we played Croperdy. We were going to do, there was a friend, it was a mutual friend, and uh, Zal was playing at a pub just down the road from Croperdy. And he approached Zal and he approached me and he said, well, why don't you two get together and do Faith Healer at Croperdy, right? And I was kind of, okay, well, we don't know. I haven't played it for a while. And, uh, and eventually Zal went, no, I can't make it up in time. I've got the gig and stuff like that. And it never happened. And it was a shame. And, it, and Zal actually kind of, I think, um, 
he had regrets about that later on, but it was uh, would have been stunning. Sin Dogs, John John uh, Twiddle, Sin Dogs was Zal's band, which is now sadly left as well, but it was it was great. Uh, uh, Ian Graham, there are no fish from Italy. Ah, oh, Dolph, Dolph. Dave Goodrich, Joyce Van der Brugge, Pete Townsend, very good, yeah. Now, Pete Townsend, I actually asked, um, I think I mentioned this before on Fishing Friday, I asked, asked him if he wanted to uh, do something on, on Weltschmerz and specifically Waverly Steps because it's obviously, there's there's a um, there's a bit of a who influence in that, but it was, I couldn't get past his personal assistant, so. Uh, but I met Pete a few times, again, I've, I've, he's... Pete Townsend's one of those people that I would love to spend a night with and just talk and just, you know, chew the fat with. But it's never happened, and I doubt it ever will. Uh. Neil Montgomery, what's all this He Knows You Know cover on YouTube? Yeah, it's Bombscare. They're a Scottish ska band. If you've not seen, check out the Facebook pages and check out this Bombscare cover He Knows You Know. It's absolutely brilliant. It's completely left field. And I never would have thought that he knows, you know, would have worked in a ska, arrange a ska arrangement. And it does really, really well. Uh. Oh. Yeah, Maria Luisa, where's your kitchen? The right or left? I'm sorry, I, I set it all up. And then it was like things, what happened was that the, the go live, the little blue button, suddenly disappeared and I thought I'd screwed up. And I started to panic a little bit because I was only like five minutes off and I realised that the, the, the reverse button I've got to do when the phone's like that, like that. And then as soon as you go like that, it goes off. And I was going, oh, I'm alive, the I'll get it next week. Phil Batten, hello there, Richard Llewellyn. Oh, I've got to go down the piece. Oh, God. Marcus Dick, hello. Oh, Deborah Keys, I know smoking and vaping. Listen, I'm in lockdown, right? I'm not singing for at least a year. It's like before, the next time I go out on the road, right? The next time I go out on the road, then you can be blessed. Like, I will be carrying less weight. And, like, man boobs will be hopefully a little bit depressed and things. But, I mean, uh, I can't deal with lockdown where, you know, cutting down everything and being an absolute saint. The halo slipped, you know? And it's like, that's the way it is, you know? So, yes, it's wheezing, but I'm also dealing with the fact that, like, up there, if you look there, you can see the fan, and there's a fan up there, because what happens is that all the hot air rises, as you know it does, that's why there are balloons, <laughs> and um, so the air goes up into the, the apex of the, the roof, and and it comes down, and it, it kind of... It, kind of falls and then you'll be sitting there watching the TV at night and after a, with a fire being on for about three, four hours, like you're suddenly in a situation where you, you go, <gasps> right? So the fans, I put those, the fans up, right? To make me think of a Singapore and Singapore slings. But um, the fans move the air around and it actually moves all the way around the, the house. It, it just keeps an air movement happening. So the heat from the morsel stove gets spread all around the house. But the downside of that, right, 
is because this is a studio, and it used to be worse, right? Because in the days when I had the the the, um, the soundproofing on the walls, which was, um, it was a uh, uh, cloth basically on top of all these different uh, different uh, acoustic kind of treatments, and the dust used to gather on the, this thing. So when when the, we used to come in and start rehearsing, or, or when we were playing, and if you had a drummer in the room, right, especially if you had a drummer in the room, and they start hitting it, the vibrations used to dislodge all the dust. And I used, that was one of the reasons, I used to have terrible problems with rehearsals and things, which was nothing to do with smoking. It was to do with the dust particles that were flying about in this, this place. And um, the problem is now that because of the beams up above me, there's all these the cobwebs which we leave in to catch the flies. <laughs> it's my excuse, but um, but yeah, so they're all up there, and I'm I can't get up there. I'm not fit enough and flexible enough to go up to the beams, and I've got to try and convince my steps and Liam to go up there and clean them all. But he's the petrified of spiders, right? So he thinks there's like huge spiders living up there in the beams. So I can't get them up there at the moment. We just teach them and coax them into going up, because all the whole room needs to be completely cleaned out, like completely vacuumed and all the stone needs to be washed and, and things like that. And of course, you imagine what it's like, I mean, if you could even find people, right, trying to get somebody these days to actually do a, a cleaning, like a professional cleaning group to, 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 to come in and, and do that for us. In the middle of COVID, forget it. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, so when the fans start to move, <coughs> when the fans move, and basically it moves all the dust off the beams and it all starts coming down, so you get a really runny nose. It's not a coke habit, it's basically, I've got a really bad dust habit. And there's nothing we can do about it unless myself or Simona or both of us go up into the beams with a vacuum cleaner and a lot of cloths and clean it, so. Uh, hey. i got to go down. Oh yeah, Steve Bissett, Fugazi. Um, uh, I think there's been a bit of a glitch. It's Fugazi, I can't give you a definitive date on when it's coming out, but it's going to be uh, towards the end of the summer. Um, the, the problem is that Mark Wilkinson's tied up with two major projects at the moment, and um, he won't be finished until the end of March. Therefore, he can't even start working on the, the Fugazi artwork until, until April. So uh, it's all mixed, Avril and Andy. I've heard the, 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 the new mixes that Avril and Andy have done at Fugazi and they're fantastic. I've seen the, the DVD, I've seen the Blu-ray, the vinyl's away to get, uh, to get pressed and I'm waiting to hear back. I'm, I'll, I'll, be getting a, um, I'll be getting test discs from Fugazi probably in the next three weeks or so. You never know, you might actually play a track from it. Some of the stuff, Emerald Lies is fantastic. So she chameleon, I mean, completely new lease of life. Um, as I've said last week, the, the Blu-ray is interesting, as I said. I mean, even, I talked to Ian Mosley about uh, two, three weeks ago, and um, we always kind of phone each other up about, up about this time after New Year. And, uh, and I did say to Ian, I said, I didn't realise I was in a religious cult band. Silly, I'm like, you know, the real nasty, dirty rocker, and they're surrounded by all these saintly-like people. Right? I've got different memories from that time, which will be explored in a lot of detail in the autobiography. Um, it's, uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's moving along. Like I said, Mark's will start the artwork, uh, but the the, the 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 sounds all done. I've got to hear the um, 
the, the, the live stuff, which I can't really talk too much about it because when you're dealing with a major label, they get really fussy about it and everybody gets a bit ticky-tacky-toe and, you know, it was like when we did the... Uh, I remember when we did um, uh, Wembley, we did Wembley Arena way back in, what was it, 87 or what it was? And um, we were told that uh, Andrew and Fergie were going to be coming to the gig, right? Which was like, wow, because it was a charity gig and stuff. And... Um, I did an interview with a really good friend of mine and I said, I tell you how hip we're getting nowadays, I said, we've even got Andrew Veggie coming to one of our gigs at Wembley. And I said, but you can't put that out. And she did phone up and profusely apologised, but she put it out in the article and Buckingham Palace got wind of it. And um, basically they were irate, how dare you do this, how dare you announce it? Because we're supposed, we have, we announce it, we are the ones that do the announcing, right? And um, they said, we can't have Andrew and Fergie, so they sent us down Edward. <laughs> that was a laugh. My mum and I were actually talking about this a couple of weeks ago, because she still remembers going down and, you know, and she was rabbiting away to, to Edward, as she, as she does. And they had, you know, mum and royal family. Oh, mum's the royal family. Put a member of the royal family in front of you, mum or dad, and it's like, oh, man, well, your mum especially was like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, blah, blah, perfect, you know? So my mum loved it, but she met Edward. And, um... And Edward came up and he tried to take the mickey out of me because I was wearing uh, the jester suit at the time, that, that kind of harlequin suit. And he came up and said, oh, it's a nice suit. Like, you know, it's like blah, blah, blah. And I said, and I said you know what? He says, you don't look anything like your spitting image puppet. <laughs> <laughs> the tower for that boy, the tower. Huh? Oh, yeah, there's a couple of hellos and thank yous and everything I've got to do. Yeah. Uh, That's the Scottish Bank Trust. Um, oh, where the fuck is it? Where's it going? Oh, here it is, yeah. <coughs> um, uh, this is from Paul Cavender, right? I said, I have not missed one fish and Friday so far, and it was the only thing I had to look forward to for most of 2020, as I was locked in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia with no wife and no alcohol. <laughs> and, I th and I think all of us who watch Fish and Friday are so appreciative, da da da. So, yeah, so, um, and he said, I'm trying to fit the word nevertheless into my mail. It was, she said it this morning. So, Paul Cavender, hello. Um, Sue and Mark Williamson, a very happy fourth wedding anniversary to you. It's like being, it's like being already, too. Yeah. But there's, um, where's some other stuff? There's some other ones. Uh, hold on. There's a couple of ones I picked out. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, that was the Sue Williamson bit. Yeah, yeah, I got this one. I picked up this one before. Oh, it's off the hook. some good ones. Yeah, the honey thing. Yeah, I'll do the honey thing last. you got to tell... You Oh, Mark Palmer, he sent me in a question. If a mouse and a hamster had a square goal, right, no chibs allowed, who would win for the non-Scottish? If they had a square goal, which means it was just the mouse and the hamster facing off against each other with no chibs. A chib is a knife, right? Just a straight, square go, straight fight, a mouse and a hamster. And I had to think about that. And I spent, oh, good. Oh, five minutes thinking about this this afternoon. And I kind of went, well, the hamster, right? It's like, it's really good at going on a wheel. It's a bit fit, right? But the mouse has got a little bit more edge on it, you know? He's, got, he's a bit more a kind of karate mouse. And I kind of figure, <clears throat> the spice, despite the fitness of the hamster, it's a big object, right? I mean, a hamster's got a big fluffy thing, right? 
And I think it's kind of like omnidirectional, right? And, um, but I think the mouse would be able to dart around it and kick shit out of it, right? So in a fight between a hamster and a mouse, I reckon probably the mouse is going to win just through the flexibility and, and, and more movement than a big tubby, uh, um, a big tubby, tubby hamster, which brought me back to Winter Watch. It was great. <laughs> Winter Watch. There's this Welsh geezer on Winter Watch. He's brilliant. I think I mentioned this in the previous one. He's great. Right? Winter Watch is obviously finished. We're now moving into Spring Watch, right? But the big Welsh guy, and he was out, he was out there, and he goes, you know, and he's there was they've got the live cameras, right? And, one of, and there was this rodent, <laughs> and it's lying there, and he goes, oh, he says it's snoring in there, snoring, and he said that's an edible dormouse, a snoring edible dormouse. <laughs> the next day he came back on, he goes. I want to apologise. He says, it wasn't an edible dormouse. It was just, it was a, 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 a field dormouse, a normal dormouse. <laughs> There's probably a lot of people going, edible dormouse? <laughs> Never had one of them. <laughs> Get the barbecue on. We found some Welsh edible dormice. <laughs> but, but it was his apology was so sincere. It, I ought to say, it wasn't an edible dormouse. It was a field dormouse. So, Imagine getting that tag, eh? Edible, before your name. Oh, that's uh, an edible something or other. <laughs> edible. <laughs> Unfortunate. Hmm. Uh. <laughs> I don't want... Yeah. Victoria Harrison. You were once always asking about the, the dancing. I was... Dancing, I, I, I was never a great dancer. I, I did the Highland stuff at school, which I had to do under punishment of death, right? Which was basically the gay gardens. It was like, you know, when you didn't do gym lessons in Scotland, you got Highland dancing. And it was always when it moved into the winter, oh, it's like, you know, and you go, oh, fuck no, Highland dancing. And it was, uh, and then you got to go on and, oh, but dancing, I was never a particularly good dancer, but I, I kind of, over the years, I kind of learned some moves, and on stage, you know, I got more into it, and I think as my confidence grew, you know. But with dancing, uh, I'm actually, I'm all right, aren't I? I'm okay, yeah. You're good. Yeah. But the thing is, is, it takes me a lot to get up on the floor, right? But once I'm up there, you kind of get me off. <laughs> I'll sit in the background, and I'll go, nah, I'll leave it there now. I'll be up in a few minutes for a couple of drinks, a couple of drinks, a couple of drinks, and then that song will come on. Dalkeith High School, it was Hold Your Head Up or something like that, right? And it came on, do-do-do-do, which was on the Songs from the Mirror album as well, by the way, which is one of the reasons I chose it. But, um, but yeah, but, you know, you get one song and it gets up and I go up and then I start moving and I'm getting into it and, like, you know, wheezing away, right? And I'm, like, you know, jumping. And then I'm, I'm up there for ages and I, I, I really like moving and, you know, I like, um, yeah... It's, but, I, but I can't do, um, I can't do kind of, like, proper dancing. You know, like, I went, remember I went to Argentina and I was in Buenos Aires on my birthday and somebody, they took us down a tango club. Way this, well, we were trying to find a tango club and we couldn't find any that's open and we ended up in the suburbs of Buenos Aires in this really heavy area. And we went into what looked like a miners' hall, a miners' club, right? And it was... Some really heavy dudes in there, I tell you. And I was wearing a kilt, right? I was wearing, wondering about Buenos Aires wearing a kilt, pitched out my head, right? As you do, right? 
And, um, and this, this lovely lady tried to teach me in the bar. <laughs> there was the floor where everybody was doing proper tangos and like, I mean, really, I mean, it was, I'd never seen like proper tango dancers before. And it was like, wow, right? And, uh, and I was through in the back bar, like knocking back these <laughs> Argentinian drinks. <laughs> I can't remember, Pichos, Pichos, Pichos. Anyway, somebody will point it out. And then it was, I was napping these back and she's trying to teach me how to tangle. Like I could not, I don't have any, um, the, from my head to my feet and to my hands, it just doesn't work, right? And that's why I don't play an instrument, right? Because I can't, I can't get it all together. You know, I can't get it all together and I can't get dancing. I mean, the waltz thing, well, I'll talk about waltzing next week. I've got a wee surprise for you next week because it's Valentine's Day. And uh, I don't even think I need to put the five songs up because, you know, it's going to be before Valentine's Day. And hey, let's get romantic, you know. So, uh, but I don't... Oh, I missed it, I missed it, I missed it. Somebody wrote a thing about... Oh, da-da-da. Owen Boyle, think you finally snapped. Fish have been edible. Oh, come on. Uh... David McElroy, oh bloody hell, I remember the Highland dancing at school. How can you forget? Scarred forever. Ed Friday, social dancing. Mice are more slick at Martin Beveridge. Have you ever worked with Susan Carlman? No. Colin Baird? No. Michael King? We did square dancing in school growing up in ta Texas. <laughs> yeah, square dancing. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, I suppose it's, I think... It's all based around island dancing as well. Actually, a friend of my mum's, right, Des and Vayu, who live down in, uh, down in uh, North Berwick, their daughter lives out in California, and that's what she does for a living, and she teaches highland dances. And what she does is she goes around people, like when rich people get married and they want to have a, they've got a Scottish grandfather, father, and they decide to have a highland theme, then she goes along and takes certain dancers along and she teaches them all so that they can dance at the wedding. And she goes to amazing places. I've seen uh, special patrol group, the young ones. Yeah, the hamster. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Peter Fox, Joe Fillingham, think yourself lucky I was picked for the country dancing troupe at primary. Sweaty Hands Brigade. Oh, yeah, I remember that. There was always like a couple of people you wanted to try and, <coughs> and avoid because they had something like some skin complaint or whatever, you know, and it's, uh, you know, and you'd be there and you're getting paired off. And you go, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not going down that route because it's like, but yeah, the Sweaty Hands Brigade. James Fraser, fish dancing to Argent, murder on the dance floor. I can actually dance quite good. Like, you know, it's not exactly murder. Christian Drusen, would you do Strictly Come Dancing? No. I, I can't do it. Foxtrots and stuff like that. I just don't have the... What's the word for it? Come, call a... Coordination. 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 <laughs> I don't have the coordination to do that stuff. Deborah Casey, Dance of Dead, yeah. <laughs> Elaine Bittery, your dad dancing outstanding, thank you. Embarrasses the hell out of my daughter. Uh, uh. <laughs> Robin Elliott, the old games hall in Selkirk. <laughs> Last one picked. <laughs> it's, 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 it's terrible, isn't it? It's like, you know, because I, mean, I was quite a chubby guy at school, you know I mean? I was, I was, I was tall and I was chubby and I got a lot of really greasy hair. I just, I, when Head and Shoulders came out, it was a godsend. Uh. 
<laughs> but yeah, that sense of rejection when you're the last one picked at the school Highland dance. <laughs> Both ways. <laughs> Laura B. Ward, Tango is super. Tango is super hard, Laura, but it's a, but, I mean, to watch it done in for real in a club in Buenos Aires at two o'clock in the morning was just amazing. Darren Wells, what's the story behind Whiplash, please? Somebody's already asked that, um, not next week, but probably the week after, what I'll do is I'll throw five B-sides up for choice. And Carlos Gonzalez, Artsmendi, Pisco. That was the drink that took me out in Buenos Aires and many a night down in South America. Uh, well, I've got to go, go down. Pete Johnston, we had band dancing at school. Brian Wilson, the airfish, dashing white sergeant. Yeah, the dashing, I used to like the dashing white sergeant. Dashing white sergeant, and then it was, they ate some real, right? I like that. Um, Gay Gordon's is simple. I mean, that's always the simple one. In fact, at our wedding, right, which again, we'll, I'll talk about next week, we had we had country dancing, we had a great band at our wedding. And it was, uh... <laughs> Brian Wilson, uh... Chrissy Pine, never watched Strictly, but would if you were in it, Fish. I won't be in it. There's no way. I've, I've, I've not even got two left feet. There's, there's something I could say, but I'm not allowed to because it's not politically correct. Uh, John Watson, vaguely recall doing US square dancing when we were at primary school in rural Stirlingshire. <laughs> square dancing. Is that... Yeah, because there was all these... You get all these clubs out in the west, in the west of Scotland, where they do they do the cowboy bit and do all, all that stuff, line dancing and stuff. Uh, Uh, I'm coming down the thing. Alan Johnson, warts. <laughs> Say no more. Ah, uh. oh, go away. Kenny Tate, could have been worse, could have been Morris dancing. Uh, I don't get into, I don't understand Morris dancing at all. Uh, I like the wee bells a bit, but that's it. Uh. Uh. Douglas Young, by the way, air versus hearts on now. And G. Hendrix, I did dance when I was young. Avril McIntosh, hi Avril. Cover your hands with your jumper so you don't have to hold boys' hands. <laughs> I remember that. Here you go. Dearly, 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 dearly. Move it up, move it up. <laughs> oh no miss that Chrissy Pie hey I'm an ex-Morris dancer it's brilliant but very dangerous <laughs> yeah. I went Morris dancing once fell off the bonnet <laughs> your drinking hand has got great coordination yeah I'm drinking hands it's weird it's like if I don't think about stuff, well, I think that's my problem. I think it's got something to do with my kind of spectral side, but if I don't think about stuff, I've got great coordination, you know? It's like, it, it's really weird how, if I start to think too much, if I just feel, if I just feel something, if I just feel what I'm trying to do, then I can, I can do it and I can, but if I, if I think it, and I think that's my problem with my coordination, that I kind of overthink, and there's a, that's where that kind of 
breakdown happens between hands and feet and head, you know. <laughs> Robert Olson, I have a fear of dancing after being knocked unconscious by a friend dancing wildly with his arms. <laughs> Knocked unconscious by your mate done a dance floor. Uh. <sighs> Kenny Tate, if we did Morris dancing in Scotland, we'd end up battering each other's with sticks. Uh. <clears throat> David Grant, do you still have the Bruins picture? I do have, yes, I do have that Bruins picture. It's one day, you know. <clears throat> Gary Lowndes, the twist, surely, yeah, I, I doubt, I remember the twist when it happened, right? And I actually had the Chubby Checker song, you know, when I was a kid. Well, my dad, my mum and dad had that single. And, uh, and of course, we did it with Marillion. It used to find its way into, uh, was it Marcus Square Heroes or Margaret or something? But we used to put the twist in and say, it's twist, do you? Like we did last summer. Yeah, it was Marcus. Break. Oh. Brian Treadgold, was there a tall lassie you'd always get paid with for the Highland dancing? Yes, I always. Wendy Gardner was one, and Carol. Uh, I can't remember. Wendy, Wendy and I always got paid up because we were tall people, right? John Dexter Jones, hi John. I got your album, mate. I've not heard it yet because for obvious reasons this year, you did Welsh clog dancing. <laughs> Welsh clog dancing at your school. Uh. Yeah, you'll bring your own clogs, park them at the door. Sierra Stark, hello, Pierre Fox, can't remember dancing whatsoever at school. Oh, poor laddie. Chris Davis, long time fan from Oregon, USA. Uh, see you in Seattle, travel a few times to UK to see you. Oh, miss you, it's gone down. Uh, Andy Pickard, my wife snapped her her Hercules, Hercules tendon, Morris dancing. You mean Achilles? Hercules. Oh. <laughs> There's a lot of dodgy comments coming up here. Karen Briggs, any chance of a real garden party at yours after COVID, like Dave Brock Hawkwin get together? Ugh, too many people in the garden. Wife would they like it? Huh? Oh, <laughs> oh, you got to come across. What's for? You do. This is a very easy one tonight. It's like, what's for tea tonight, Smora? I'm not cooking tonight. We're gonna have a curry. I'm cooking tomorrow. <laughs> We're having lamb tomorrow, roast lamb tomorrow. But tonight, Ali from the Eastern Eye is, is delivering up here. Liam cheered, and he got his before fishing Friday because he didn't want to wait till the end. So the poor guy, we had to tip him when he brought Liam's stuff up and uh, so that he can come. He, he was, felt better about come driving all the way back up here again. Uh, so what, what, what did you order for me? Uh, chicken jalfrezi. Oh, chicken jalfrezi. Oh, I like that. <laughs> I 
Ireland, Lynn Guerin, I got hit on the head by those big sticks. I take it you're talking about Morris dancing. Yeah. <laughs> tried, oh, very good. David Grant tried tap dancing, fell in the bath. Very good. Uh, just Andy Laidlaw, we just did it there. It's a job phrase at night. Uh, Oh, I've got to sip it down. Chris Goodwin, Market Square Heroes at Milton Keynes and uh, the NEC Birmingham, yeah. I don't know, I'm just dipping it through. I'll go back to the, I'll go back to the sheet because it's too difficult. Um, Jason Kenny, I saw this one come up a couple of times. It's like, do you have any memories from the surreal soap aid gig played in St. Helens in 86? I was there and you had to break up in the, a fight in the crowd, I think. Jason, you are correct. That was one of the worst things. After Live Aid, everybody was doing some sort of aid gig and somebody came up with this idea. They were so paid, right, in St. Helens at the rugby ground. And I don't know why we played it, right? It was rubbish. It was like there was a bunch of bands there but what you also had was all these stars for Corey and stuff, right? That were going up and singing with a bunch of club musicians, right? So they were going up and singing their favourite song, Zorry Ball, Betty G, I did it, Yeah. And I'd never been, it was the first time I think I was ever in St. Helens, right? And it was like, we arrived there and, 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 and the, kind of in a tour bus and set up and it was like oh my god and backstage there was all these kind of soap artists and i'm not a big soap fan right i mean my life on its own has enough drama without having to go and allow eastenders and all the rest of it to infiltrate my life and pollute my head even further right and we ended up doing this gig with all these bloody soap actors and actresses and they were all pissed right it was like backstage, they were ladling Alki back, you know, and it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and of course, they were all going out and then singing one or two songs. Thank you very much, good day. And, um, and we went on. And it wasn't a particularly big crowd. It wasn't like, a, it wasn't Wembley, right? It wasn't kind of packed out. And something happened in the crowd and there was a running battle happened during our set, all right? And there was like a bunch of guys chasing another bunch of guys and they went straight across the front of the crowd, right? And went up into the terracing and they're battling away and, and I'm kind of going, this is absolutely out of order. Just really pissed up people. And I had to stop the set and go like, whoa, you know? And I don't know, I, I don't think I went down into the crowd. I wasn't that daft, right? But I mean, I actually called it. It's like, what are you guys doing? But it was a horrible, horrible experience. I can't remember anything about the gig. We should not have been there. I don't know why we were there. Maybe it's something to do with John Arneson because he didn't let me sing on the, come back for it, let you sing on the Live Aid single. And we didn't end up doing uh, Live Aid at, um, at Wembley. And I think he felt, oh, well, we have to get involved with this bandwagon. So we'll do Soap Aid, right? And Soap Aid, we slipped on it big time. It was like, it was a non-entity of a gig, horrible thing. And the vibe, like I said, the vibe backstage was ugly all the time. The whole day, it was really ugly. And of course, I didn't know half these people that were, were there because I didn't watch soaps, you know? But yeah, it was a really, oh, vile gig. I've got no, 
I've got there's something I've got vivid memories and I can I can shut my eyes and I can see that run of the gang the two gangs fighting all the way up I can remember that and I can remember stopping it and going mental on the stage you know but it's, uh, but we're moving towards the end you've do you want to say anything at all what? oh there was one do you want to do the argument question no. Oh yeah, Andy McDonald, catch you later. Andy Mack in Saudi. You should get in touch with him. I don't know if the other guy's out there, but it's like, um, yeah, Saudi. Uh, I don't know. Oh yeah, Simon Bonfield. My wife and I celebrated 20th anniversary this week. Realised it took me almost 10 years to persuade her to go to a fish concert. We went in the snow to Manchester to one of the very last Fish Heads acoustic gigs in December 2010. We were sat at the bar having a drink and you came up and said hello and she asked me afterwards, who was that? <laughs> Great, I love that. I love doing that stuff. Who's that, who's that guy? Oh, that's Fish at a Million. So it's always Fish at a Million. Right. So Simon Bunchfield, happy anniversary to you and your wife. Right. There's another one here. I should have got this done. Uh, Adam Brunt. Have you ever been run over? I have, but only by a moped. <laughs> no, I've not, I've not been run over as far as I can remember. Uh, I've, I've, I once nearly ran myself over in a tractor. Uh, I had an old grey Massey Ferguson tractor. And uh, I, I, way back in all these, and I actually bought it off Andy Field, who was my manager and the former, kind of, he was my manager, production manager. Oh, it's the curry. It's, it's Ali with the curry. Perfect timing. And um, I was on this tractor and the, the problem was that the, the clutch used to, used to jump into gear and I was getting off the tractor. And as I got off, I don't know whether I caught the gear stick and it clipped it in. And just as I got off, the damn thing leapt forward and, it was, and the, the wheel went over the back of my, it kind of knocked me over and put the agricultural accident. But um, I've had a couple of close shaves, but I've not been hit, definitely not by a moped. Right? Uh, Andrew Glennon, I like this question, right? Off the wall question. If you had to live, Andrew Glennon, thank you. If you had to live within one of your album covers, including Marillion, for one day, what cover would you live in? I suspect Fugazi, because you would be lying pished on the bed. <laughs> Thanks, mate. That's, it's nice to be, you know, put one. Uh, Vigil would be a good one. Maybe, it'd be fun. The Vigil Inside cover, right? I think, you because know, there's a lot going on. It keep me occupied for a day and stuff. And there's, you know, a lot of people to talk to. Uh, um, not script. It's a bit too sharp. Fugazi is a good one. Um, clutching the straws, in it? I mean, really, I mean, if it was for real, and if all those people were alive and in a bar together, that is a bar that I would like to be in. With that kind of company. So I'd go, I think, yes, I'll go the Clutching at Straws album cover as being a real life, a day in the life of a, of a cover. We'd be definitely that. So, uh, Alan Rook at Reading in 1983, you were on before Headliners Black Sabbath. Yes, we were. Hardly musical soulmates, but did you have any interaction with them, their on stage, their on stage costume dwarfs or their Spinal Tap Stonehenge set? No. It was, um, we didn't see them. They were, uh, 
I never met any of them. I didn't meet Tony Iommi till years later when I was solo. Um, I think that was Ian Gillen's uh, first outing with a band. And um, was it Ian Gillen? And I remember like when we were setting up, because it was two stages, right? And we were on this stage, they were on that stage, or that stage of this stage, depending on which it is. Za, za, za. And um, I remember it caught fire. <laughs> One of the smoke machines had uh, been put too close to the, 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 the actual Spinal Tap Stonehenge. <laughs> like, well, not the actual Spinal Tap. This was pre-Spinal Tap. This was what I think allowed Spinal Tap, gave them the inspiration. And the fucking thing caught fire. And we were kind of we were kind of kicking around because we wanted to see it. I, I, I saw a little, a tiny bit of the set, but I do remember all these roadies running about fire extinguishers because Stonehenge had caught fire because of the <laughs> smoke machine. <laughs> But, I mean, they went down like, oh, wasn't good. That wasn't a good outing for them at all. And, of course, we went on and just rammed it, you know. It was, uh... but, yeah, it was um, not nice. Okay. Uh, Terry Cook. Hello, Terry from Merseyside. Uh... Lane Strong, weird and wonderful. Okay. So did you have any diva demands when on tour, like in Wayne's World when the roadie tells the story about Ozzy refusing to go on without a brandy glass full of brown M&Ms, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Valerie T, what's your backstage tour rider if you've ever been famous or cheeky enough to request one? Yeah, we have a rider. Every, every band's got a rider, right? The backstage rider is, 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 you have it, especially when you're on a bus. And, um... Back in Murillo days, there was nothing outrageous that we asked for, maybe sometimes, but I'm not going to tell you about that. But, I mean, um, it was mainly consumables. Um, no, we were... The, the, the actual... The alcohol, when it got into... kind of Especially clutching at straws time, but, um, it, was, it got pretty... Everybody ordered balls. But a lot of them, like Steve Rothery, Mark Kelly, what they do was like they get the ball and take them home with them, right? So it was like a, it was like a, um, it was like a milk float. The bus became a milk float, and like Steve was in, uh, Steve was in whiskey. It was tequila. There was brandy. Jack Daniels. There was a lot of spirits kicking around. Um, nowadays, it, was, it became wine, and we'd get on recent tours. Like back in 2018, it was I think it was like four bottles of white and two bottles of red. Steve and Robin were into red wine. Myself was in the white. Gavin didn't drink. Um, we'd get some beers for the crew. Uh, um, and that's it. I mean, because basically, the rider, it's not like free. Right? It's, um, the rider is actually paid from the ticket price. So if you get a very expensive rider, just basically it's money that doesn't go, you don't, you don't pick up and, and, and basically in your fee. So, you know, you get a huge rider and basically you're paying for it. So it's not as if you're exploiting the promoter. And, uh, but, you know, we always keep it under control. When we're on a tour, there's certain things that we want. It's like bananas. Uh, because, you know, you arrive in the gig and you, you set up, you know, the, the, the crew are setting up for, you know, 12 o'clock or whatever. And, and, you know, they're in the venue at 12 to, 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 to start moving things. So, you know, there's a lot of edibles that, you know, you, you try and get. Manuka honey was one thing that I asked for, so if you want to call that a specialist thing, Manuka honey. Uh, back in the days, cigarettes, you know, you'd ask for specific cigarettes, but I don't ask, 
like six now, no. And um, uh, yeah, manuka honey. But I mean, it's usually lemons and shit like that. But I mean, a lot of it's edibles for so that you've got kind of snacks and healthy stuff kicking around. But I mean, you know, M and M's and asking for outrageous stuff. I never got into that. And Marillion, whenever. Really, you know, we never had, you know, huge demands. I mean, the whole reason that I think it was Van Halen started asking for that was because they'd been treated so badly by promoters and as they went through that basically they turned the tables on the promoters and that's why they insisted, you know. And it's like, you know, please make sure it's snowing at the venue, which was a slang word for cocaine. So when somebody went, well, please make it sure it's snowing in the venue on the day, which meant, like, make sure there's cocaine there. We didn't ask for that. Some of the crew did, but we didn't. Something you don't want to go cut out with. Um, we're moving at eight o'clock. <clears throat> it's the last song. This was asked for, and somebody said, like, you've not played it for a while, so I thought. <laughs> it's rubbish. Um, This was asked for. Uh, blah, blah, blah. What track is it? Three. It's been on a while. Oh, what number was it again? One, two, three. Walking on eggshells, as requested. Thank you. 
And there we go. That's another um, Fishing Friday. Another one. We're moving up to the anniversary edition. Unbelievable. Well, it's incredible. Anniversary edition, Fishing Friday. For those of you still watching, um, uh, if you tune in to the morning show in Sky, I think it's on 8.30 on Monday, uh, I've been invited onto the programme to discuss what I've been going on about, the Brexit touring issues. And later that morning, I'm going to be um, interviewed as part of a, um, a, kind of, uh, a kind of consultation thing for a parliamentary committee group, which is all about Brexit. I've not talked about this week. Um, I'm still dealing with it. Uh, I won't go down that because it's a rabbit hole, especially at this this time. It's ten past eight and stuff. But um, we're going to be back next week. It's going to be it'll be the Valentine's Day edition. So we're going to do some. Uh, it's going to be love song time. Good love and flowers. And I'm going to. Um, someone and I have decided we're going to put a wee video up that you've never seen before. Um, I'll surprise you with it next week. It's fantastic. It'll put a tear in your eye. So it's going to be a romantic, um, uh, a romantic fishing Friday um, next week. So until then, we're all <laughs> locked down or uh, <laughs> lock in. <laughs> it's a bloody, it's seven day, seven day a week lock in. Just watch what you're doing. It's um, we've still got a way to go yet. Um, one thing. If you see my name getting advertised on anything, any festivals in the summer in Europe, I'm not playing them. It's not happening. There was one very, um, let's just say, there was somebody advertising the show that I was supposed to be playing in July. It ain't happening. Um, September, I don't know about yet. The way things are going and the way vaccinations and things are, are, are happening is is hugely unlikely. So, don't give Ticketmaster the percentages, whatever. Please. I know I might get shot down for this, you know, by people that uh, deal with my um, life stuff. But I mean, don't buy tickets until you find out something's definitely happening, okay? Right? And just remember, it's like this is, we've still got a long way to go yet. It's not over, you know, this was like the end of the tunnel, etc. somewhere down that long line. But um, just stay safe, just stay safe, take care. Be responsible and just use common sense right? when you're dealing with everything, we're dealing with people, we're dealing with situations, and just follow the guidelines. They're there for a reason. So until next week, from Simona. Good night. And myself, um, just take care and stay alive, okay? And um, we'll see you next week, as always, okay? Bye. <laughs>